All right, Ed. Here we go. Here we go. All right, we're on. Jackie Thurlow Lippish is a compact powerhouse of a woman with a streak of silver in her coarse, dark hair. In my work chronicling the state's water problems, I've met few Floridians more dedicated to this situation than she is. Okay, we're going to head to St. Lucie Loxon Dam, which is in the C-44 Canal, which is the dreaded canal that was uh, dug in 1915 to 1923, connecting uh, Lake Okeechobee to the South Fork of the St. Lucie River. Thurlow Lippish is a governing board member for the South Florida Water Management District, the state agency overseeing Everglades restoration. In her spare time, she flies with her pilot husband, Ed Lippish, above the River of Grass, documenting the problems for her blog. That is how waters are discharged through Lake Okeechobee to the St. Lucie River. We call it the seven gates of hell because there are seven gates and uh, they open one to seven, depending on how much water the Army Corps discharges through that gate. And uh, it is truly the seven gates of hell. I'm Amy Green. From WMFE and the Florida Center for Investigative Reporting, this is Drained, a podcast series about the massive plan to save the Everglades. Episode 2, Toxic Water. On a bright Saturday morning in August, Jackie Thurlow Lippish and her husband took off near Stewart in their B-55 Barron Beechcraft. I asked Thurlow Lippish to record the flight on her cell phone, as social distancing guidelines during the coronavirus pandemic prevented me from flying with them. When you're up here, it is so beautiful in spite of the water issues. You see the bright blue Atlantic Ocean. You see the darker-colored Indian River Lagoon. You see the beautiful savannas. This is Florida. Florida, everything is at stake with Florida's waters. If we don't have our waters in order, we don't have Florida's future in order. It's possible you've seen Jackie Thurlow Lippish's photographs of large discharges of fresh water from Lake Okeechobee as it flows through the St. Lucie River to the river's delicate estuary on the Atlantic Ocean. In the images, the dark lake water appears ominous, like a shadow spreading across the aquamarine brackish water of the coastal estuary. The photographs have appeared widely on social media and in the news. That's because in 2016 and 2018, the lake discharges, water that nature intended to flow south into the Everglades, helped trigger widespread blooms of toxic algae. Think of Lake Okeechobee as the beating heart of the Everglades, but it's a diseased heart. Central Florida's cattle ranches to the north create nutrient pollution that flows into the lake. Nutrient pollution also used to flow into the lake from the sugar and vegetable farms to the south through a practice called back pumping that has been discontinued. The nutrients, and we'll talk more in the next episode about one nutrient in particular, phosphorus, 
They function in our waterways in the same way they work in the fertilizers we use on our lawns and crops. They can feed harmful algae blooms like toxic blue-green algae or cyanobacteria, which has been documented in Lake Okeechobee since 1970. Remember how in episode one, I described how draining the Everglades now prevents the River of Grass's natural flow south from Lake Okeechobee? The lake water now flows east and west through the St. Lucie and Caloosahatchee Rivers before it's dumped at the coast. When there's toxic algae on the lake, the discharges enable the blooms to spread, which is what happened in 2016 and 2018. The St. Lucie Loxon Dam is at the center of the controversy because that is the spot where the lake water enters the St. Lucie River on its way to the fragile estuary on the coast. So there it is. There's the St. Lucie Loxon Dam. Seven gates of hell. They are closed right now. Thank goodness. Thurla Lippish grew up in Stewart, and she spent a lot of time on the St. Lucie River. Loved the St. Lucie River my whole life. Um, mostly water skiing and uh, just going on family boating trips, uh, walking along the shorelines, uh, looking at all the wildlife and the birds. Um, It was always a place of beauty and solitude and reflection for me as I was growing up. And sadly now it's a reflection of destruction. After looping over the Indian River Lagoon, the plane turned east, following the St. Lucie River to Lake Okeechobee. Thurlow Lippish recalled the algae in 2016. The lake is 730 square miles, so when you're flying over it at 200 miles an hour, 1,000 to 1,500 feet over it, to see it again and again and again and again is a shocking uh, thing to see. It's beautiful in a strange way because of the bright color, but it's toxic. That's why it's that color in nature. When things are that bright, it means stay away, warning. And uh, that's the algae that goes into the St. Lucie River when we open up the gates. The toxic algae prompted Governor Ron DeSantis to make Florida's water problems a priority of his administration. I think that the toxic algae was the tipping point And so I think it is speeding up Everglades uh, restoration. Bottom line is, everybody knows that water is in trouble, and water means business, and water means recreation, and water means families. And we have to fix our waters if we're going to have a Florida we can all love and enjoy. Today, Florida is booming as the nation's third most populous state. It's hard to imagine that only a few decades ago, ours was a frontier state, basically, a subtropical one. And we have Everglades drainage to thank for our growth, but draining and replumbing the Everglades has led to a cascade of ecological consequences. Among the most obvious recently has been toxic algae. Everglades restoration is a problem to be solved. To me, the Everglades are like a puzzle, a Rubik's Cube I can't put down. Everything is so complicated. One question leads to another and another and another, and then I'm hooked. And when it comes to restoration, it really is difficult to overstate how massive everything is. 
My name is Steve Davis, and I am the Vice President of Communications and Engagement, as well as a Senior Ecologist with the Everglades Foundation. Some people might think Everglades Restoration is one project, and it's really a collection of many projects that, when built and functioning together, deliver the benefits that we all envision. The effort is composed of 68 projects, each massive on its own. Each project spans some 1,500 to 1,800 pages of planning documents. I was trying to visualize this, and so I asked Fred Sklar of the South Florida Water Management District to help. I mean, can I just ask you, do you actually have a copy of the Comprehensive Everglades Restoration Plan in your office? Well, I have so many books in my office that I had to expand to the hallway. So it's, yes, it's in my, it's in the hallway. <laughs> and how It's many, called the yellow book. <laughs> and how many, like, how many volumes is it? Like, can you give us a sense of what this thing looks like? Um, I think it's about six volumes. There's appendices. There's um, five appendices. And there's three technical documents and then there's the main document and the, I think the total number of pages is probably close to 4,000. I mean to me that's mind-boggling. Back in 2000 when then-president Bill Clinton signed Everglades restoration into law there were two fundamental goals. One was to restore a more natural flow. The other was to retain more of the vast amount of fresh water that drained from the Everglades and was wasted, basically, at the coast. To accomplish this, the plan included a series of reservoirs and other projects, but one project stood out. It was the stuff of science fiction. Here's how it was supposed to work. The project involved drilling some 300 deep wells called Aquifer Storage and Recovery, or ASR wells, around Lake Okeechobee. Water from the surface would be injected into the wells and stored more than 1,000 feet underground. And here's where it gets even more unbelievable. The plan's designers believe that the water from Okeechobee and the Everglades, once injected into the aquifer, would float like a bubble above the brackish water naturally found in the aquifer. When needed, the water that had been pumped underground could be pumped back to the surface to increase the water levels in Okeechobee and the Everglades as needed. Nothing like this ever had been attempted anywhere at such a scale. What's more, it wasn't clear that this underground storage system could even work or, and this is the more troubling aspect, it wouldn't damage Florida's sensitive aquifer, which is critical to the state's drinking supply. When I first read about this proposal, I was incredulous. What? This doesn't even make sense, I thought. Conceptually, this is a, a, a great technology because it allows you to have a, a, a very large volume of storage available at any particular time. But I had some doubts, and I wasn't the only one. You're taking polluted water from the surface, injecting it into an aquifer. Um, how is that going to affect the aquifer over time? Uh, how is the quality of the water coming out of the ground going to affect the ecology of the system on the surface? 
This entire idea sounded implausible to me. And so I asked Charles Lee of Audubon, Florida, whether anyone at the time actually thought the project was realistic. You know, let me take you back a lot earlier when a fellow by the name of uh, John F. Kennedy uh, stepped forward and said uh, that the nation would put a man on the moon in a decade. He suggested the plan to reverse engineer the draining of the Everglades was kind of like a moonshot. He brought up a concept involved in Everglades restoration called adaptive management. The plan needed to be flexible to account for new technology. The plan is expensive, and there needed to be political will to do it. Once the nation accepted that uh, there was going to be a man on the moon uh, within a decade, uh, the technology began to fill in the gaps. And as a result, we had a man on the moon in I believe a little less than a decade. Lee described the wells as a placeholder. That's the word he used for the vast quantity of water needed to restore the Everglades. People who had concerns about ASR, why it could be explained away by saying, well, yes, we know the technology is not completely proven. Uh, it's, It's in pilot project stages, but we think it's close enough that it will be. The U.S. Geological Survey, the federal agency tasked with studying the nation's natural resources, disagreed. By 2004, the federal agency raised significant concerns about the ecological safety of the wells. The agency's primary concern was that the water injected into the aquifer wouldn't float like a bubble above the aquifer water, as the idea had been presented. The injected water, which is contaminated with fertilizer and other runoff, would mix with the water inside the aquifer, effectively polluting one of Florida's most significant drinking water sources. The so-called moonshot that was 300 aquifer injection wells shows how one of the most vexing challenges of Everglades restoration remains without a solution. Where are we going to put billions of gallons of water? Even though Everglades restoration was signed into law in 2000, progress at first was sluggish. One reason was because although Congress had approved the effort in 2000, with the understanding the federal government and state would share the cost evenly, each project within the effort required additional congressional authorization. The thinking was that if the state and the federal government each chipped in about $200 million a year, so $400 million investment total, that over a period of about 20 years, by about now, 2020, the restoration construction would be largely complete. Over that 20-year span from 2000 to about 2019 or so, uh, the federal government only hit that 200 million mark once. In fact, most of the time they were below 100 million. So funding has been lagging at the federal level to where today uh, this 50-50 partnership has been about 72% or so state of Florida and maybe 28% federal government. Then in 2008, a blockbuster announcement. Charlie Crist, the governor at the time, said the state had reached a nearly $2 billion deal where the state would buy out U.S. Sugar Corp., the nation's largest and oldest sugar producer. U.S. Sugar's vast fields, made possible by the draining of the Everglades, are south of Lake Okeechobee. Crist 
then a Republican, said the state would use the land for Everglades restoration. The land acquisition would have been the largest in state history. It was huge. We, of course, we, <laughs> um, it, it would have made a, a very big difference. It would have moved things along a, a, lot, a lot quicker. The deal was characterized as a historic breakthrough in Everglades restoration because it appeared to offer the best solution yet for reviving the natural water flow south. More than a dozen Everglades restoration projects were stopped so the state could concentrate financial resources on the deal. Among the projects was a reservoir that not only was the largest and most expensive part of the restoration, it would have been the largest of its kind in the world. But within a few months, with homeowners nationwide falling into foreclosure, the economy collapsed into the Great Recession. In 2010, the state closed on a fraction of the U.S. sugar land Christ had sought to acquire. The state said it was all it could afford. And so that deal was restructured as a series of options that um, ultimately was killed because as the economy recovered, the situation for the sugar industry recovered and they no longer wanted to sell their land. Wow. Um, I don't even know how to describe what we're seeing. It's green, it's blue, it's black, there's rot, there is slime. There's complete mat of two to four, probably six inches of rotting algae. And the smell is comparable to a portalette that's been sitting in the hot sun for about three months. It's, it's really probably the worst smell you've ever smelled. I first met Mary Radabaugh back in 2016. It's Mary. Radabaugh, R-A-D-A-B-A-U-G-H, and I am the manager here at Central Marine Stewart. I had driven down to Central Marine to report on that outbreak of toxic algae Jackie Thurlow-Lippish had talked about at the top of this episode. Normally, the blue-green algae cannot survive in salt water, but that toxic summer, water managers were dumping so much fresh water from rain-swollen Lake Okeechobee the algae forced Atlantic beaches to close over July 4th weekend. It made national news. You can see the flies that are on the top of it. They're eating the rot. So that's like the sewage that is out there. Um, you can see the big brown spots that look like sewage. Then you have the green and then there's blue mixed in the green. And so it's just a, it's a really, really bad situation. The blooms sickened Floridians, disrupted business and tourism, and left marine life belly up, prompting emergency declarations in multiple counties. This area, where the St. Lucie River, Indian River Lagoon, and Atlantic Ocean converge, was especially hard hit. Central Marine was situated in an alcove. This is called Haney Creek. Lacking the circulation that could have prevented the guacamole-looking algae from blooming, dying, and rotting all in one place, layer upon terrible layer, boats bobbed sadly in the slop. Uh, this also not only possibly has horrible health effects and to us humans and to wildlife, but it also 
has been seen to have corrosive properties in some of the vessels. So, you know, there's a lot of um, damage to be done with this algae, apparently. Employees coped with face masks, air purifiers, and air fresheners. The toxic algae led to a legislative proposal for a reservoir south of Lake Okeechobee in the Everglades Agricultural Area near the sugar fields. The proposal was aimed at jump-starting construction on that reservoir project under Everglades Restoration that had been stopped for the U.S. sugar buyout, which never happened. In the Everglades Agricultural Area, the politically powerful sugar growers bitterly fought the proposal. They characterized the reservoir as scientifically unsound and unnecessary, even though all parties already had agreed to it under Everglades Restoration. The growers favored a reservoir north of the lake, which also was part of restoration. They also considered the acquisition of more farmland to be an economic threat, even though U.S. sugar executives hadn't seemed too worried about that back in 2008 when they had agreed to completely sell out to the state. In 2017, the reservoir won the approval of legislators, who agreed it would be built primarily on state land, and I'll tell you more about that in the next episode. Back in September, I called Mary Radaba again to catch up. She didn't work at Central Marine anymore. She and her husband both had been let go in March at the start of the pandemic. The marina had suffered through another outbreak of toxic blue-green algae in 2018. And although this one had coincided with a rash of red tide that had gripped much of the peninsula, at Central Marine, she said the outbreak had not been as bad as it was in 2016. So these two years, 2016 and 2018, taken together, what kind of impact did that have on Central Marine financially? I really can't estimate, since I'm not there any longer, um, what the actual impact financially was to the whole company. But when people stop using their boats, the boats don't need repair. The manufacturers have to slow down. It just trickles down throughout the community and all the businesses that are marine related. And here is what I think about when I consider how long Everglades restoration is taking. I mean, how long can people like Mary Radabaugh and businesses like Central Marine hang on? What is the solution? What needs to happen? We need this immediately. We need to fix what we man made, which is very not right. There's a lot of things that I really believe could be done, but political wills don't let it. Next on Drained, Episode 3, Define Clean. So my best choice is to stay here and do the job right and enjoy being a farmer in the EAA. And it's really cool when you think about it that that's what, that's what life is really all about. It's about dealing with challenges, whether it's your marriage or your kids in college or whatever. It's about working through the problems. 
Drained is a podcast from WMFE and the Florida Center for Investigative Reporting. It's reported and hosted by me, Amy Green, and edited by Trevor Aronson and Matthew Petty. Mixed and sound designed by Paul Vikas. Mac Dula, Jenny Babcock, and Ryan Ellison provided additional production help. Cliff Tumatel also contributed. Special thanks to Johns Hopkins University Press. Thanks for listening. Thank you.